Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to L'Chaim, the Makom Salon. Very excited to be with you wherever you are. And as this is our very first podcast, thank you so much for listening. The Makom Salon, intimate conversations with intriguing voices. Hosted by Johnny Ariel. My name is Johnny Ariel and I'm an educator devoted to the Jewish people and to Israel. I've been a participant, a teacher and a designer of programs in different countries and varied cultures. I grew up in England and for the last 35 years I have lived in Israel and worked on four continents. Along the way, this experience has given me a wonderful headache as it raises engaging questions and curious puzzles that I am eager to explore in these confusing times. Whilst we are all hunkered down due to coronavirus, this is an opportune moment for me to invite a range of people into a rolling conversation on issues beneath and beyond the news headlines. Welcome to L'Chaim, the Makom Salon, my attempt to tease out wisdom from those who have experience and expertise. L'Chaim is produced by Makom, the education lab of the Jewish Agency for Israel. I, like you, have been in quarantine for many weeks now, and so my journey to make sense of our world with people situated in far fun places means that we listen and talk in a new language, Zoomish. As Pesach was finishing, my thoughts turned to Yom HaShoah, Memorial Day for the Holocaust, its victims, and for the Jewish life that was. This year, like so much else at the moment, Yom HaShoah would be different. I recorded this conversation on the night before the lighting of memorial candles, And I wanted to explore the Shoah and anti-Semitism and the paradox of remembering to forget and forgetting to remember. I asked my friends, Rachel Fish from Boston and Jeremy Lee from Jerusalem, to join me. I met Rachel when a few of us were thinking aloud about the challenges of teaching Israel in this time, when she was the director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University, training academics. Today, she is the founding executive director of the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism, established by Robert Kraft, with the goal to forge new strategies to stop Jew hatred in a digital world. And Jeremy is a natural partner to explore these issues. He and I have been in a decades-long conversation on the big ideas of Jewish educational travel, in which I have been the muse, while he has been doing the heavy lifting. Today he teaches Jewish history and Israel studies at Hebrew Union College and consults to the UK's Holocaust Education Trust on teacher training and to a Council of Europe project on Jewish heritage roots. Welcome Rachel. Welcome Jeremy. L'chaim. I want to start with something personal about memory. Over many years, around the Jewish world, we have developed gatherings, ceremonies and rituals to identify with the victims, to hear eyewitness testimonies, and recall that, in the words of the poet Zelda, Every everyone has a name. 
that at Yad Vashem we pledge will be an everlasting name that shall be not be cut off. The name will be forever remembered. Rachel, whom do you remember and why? Thank you, Johnny, and it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Today, I wanted to talk about remembering all of the children who both perished in the Holocaust and also those who survived. And Johnny, similar to you, I tried to read during the week of Yom HaShoah some memoir or history that will shed some insight again into the atrocities that occurred. And this year, I'm reading After the Holocaust, The Bells Still Ring. And it's by Rabbi Joseph Pollock, who was the rabbi at Boston University for many years. And he was a child survivor during the Holocaust. He was about three years old when the war ended. And he is writing the prologue. He he gave a speech. It was at a gathering in 1991 of an annual conference of child survivors of the Holocaust that takes place. And in 1991, he was asked to give the address. Oh, I'm sorry. In 2009, he was asked to give the address. And he comes together with the uh, survivors who were children, and he says the following. We are gathered here, the children, the children, the last survivors of the Holocaust. We who played around the whores of Bergen-Belsen, who were hidden by loving parents who disappeared, often never to return. And if they did return, it was often with shame, with mindlessness, with madness, sometimes incapacitated emotionally and physically. For many of us, the Holocaust only began after it ended in 1945. It was only then that we became aware and started to process what we had been through, what our families, if we had any left, had experienced. The 1950s, the decade of nocturnal screaming, the decade of social silence, the decade of everyone presuming that the Holocaust was behind us, that horror and evil could be put behind us. Two child survivors I know had their parents shot in front of them when they were 10 years old, each in different Polish ghettos. How could anyone imagine that these children would get over it? We, the child survivors, were told by our surviving parents if we had any, or by their friends if they had any, what do you know about the Holocaust? You were just a child. Some of us learned to speak to God and to ask Him what He had in mind in the midst of the one and a half million children who were slaughtered and allowing us to survive. And yet here we are, at once shattered and whole, at once sad and celebrative, wanting to tell the world that the human spirit cannot be extinguished by evil, nor by sadness, nor by horror. Blessed are you, Lord our God, who has brought us to this day. And so Johnny and Jeremy, for me, I think about the children specifically because my oldest child, who is 11, is reading a book with me that is about a survivor and a family who is um, attempting to seek refuge. And the questions my 11-year-old asks are the questions that each of us ask just in different ways at different stages of our lives. And the question that sits most with me every night when we finish reading is, how could other human beings allow this to happen? Hearing that quote that Rachel read and her own child's query to her, I couldn't help but think about the most finely honed question that I have ever heard. 
It comes from my late teacher and mentor, Zev Mankiewicz, a scholar of the surviving remnant of Jews in the immediate aftermath of the Shoah. Zev asked himself and others, how was the Holocaust humanly possible? Short in words, but deceptive. Because that question, no matter which angle you explore, whatever the answers are you uncover, they all are inadequate. And you come back to the question repeatedly. How was the Holocaust humanly possible? I was curious now to hear whom and what Jeremy remembers and why. Well, so in terms of people to specifically remember, uh, for me there's a a cut between the personal and then the kind of the more chosen or kind of symbolic. So two are on the first, not blood relatives, but... um, Henrietta uh, Littman and Felix Littman, who were my, my, my wife's family, her great-grandmother, and her great, would have been her great-uncle, who were both from Vienna. She died in, a, in transit, actually, in Opoli, and he died on the Day of Liberation, actually. In, uh, he was deported very late in the war and died uh, just outside Bergen-Belsen. There are people, there are kind of specific, in terms of sort of choosing to kind of connect and remember. For me, it's a world which, from my earliest study and teaching have sort of somehow felt especially close, which is the world of historians, diarists, the people for whom we are incredibly indebted, because without their writing, without their words, we would know far less. Most famously, Emanuel Rinkelblum, Hermann Crook in, in, uh, in Vilna, Zalman Grodowski, who wrote a diary in Auschwitz, Avram Tori and Kovno, and the list and this goes on and on. And then there's all the many other diarists whose words survived in all sorts of strange ways. Grodowski is, by the way, in Birkenau, of all the places to write a diary, you know, was, was hidden under the earth and somehow found later. And in the sense that we receive our knowledge and our understanding or our attempted understanding from, from witnesses, there is no substitute for the people that record. And uh, famously, whether it was true or not, Simon Dubnov, the sort of kind of parental figure of, of Jewish history uh, was killed by the Nazis in Riga in 41, you know, allegedly, whether we, it's true or not, it almost doesn't matter, really, calls out before he's shot to, to write everything down. And, um, and I think for all of us to try and kind of really flesh out, to understand as much as we possibly can, we're endow- indebted to that act of what I think actually is an, an act of optimism. When you write something down, you're essentially saying that the future does exist because someone will read these words. That act of optimism is, in a way, probably worth as much as the actual words that were said. So they're the people that, I guess, that I choose to hold close. I echo Jeremy's admiration for the historians. I am in awe of Emmanuel Ringelblum in the Warsaw Ghetto, whose devoted work to preserve the record of everyday life in an orderly archive is a remarkable testament. In the midst of the confusion, the horror and the fears that defined life in the ghetto, he led comrades in amassing an array of material. He named the group Onik Shabbat, Shabbat Delight. The archive was buried in milk churns in the ghetto and recovered after the war. One entry reads, Friday the 26th of June, 1942, has been a great day for Onik Shabbat. This morning, the English radio broadcast about the fate of Polish Jewry. They told about everything we know so well, about Slonim and Vilna, Lemberg and Chelmno, and so forth. The Onik Shabbat group has fulfilled a great historical mission. I do not know who of our group will survive, but one thing is clear to all of us. 
Our toils and tribulations, our devotion and constant terror have not been in vain. It is not important whether or not the revelation of the incredible slaughter of Jews will have the desired effect, whether the methodical liquidation of entire Jewish communities will stop. One thing we know, we will have fulfilled our duty. The level of awareness of self-awareness is astonishing, acknowledging that their impact might well be minimal, yet nevertheless determined with absolute vigour to do their duty. And it moves me to ask you, what do you see as your duties to the Jewish people today in light of the Shoah? First of all, I love the quote. And in a way, almost before going to the, the question, I'm looking, it's fascinating looking at the answers coming in, is to actually just hold for a moment the word that's used there, which is the word duty, because it's far more, it's a little bit countercultural in some way. I don't know that duty holds in the contemporary discourse as much as one might like it. So the notion that we have duties which are outside of us, they're not only the chosen things that we kind of want to do, it's the things that we're obligated to do. And for me, that is a critical part that needs to, needs to come into this. For me, the sense of duty is my duty to the Jewish people to uh, restore a version of who we are as the way we want to be seen. That's for me, the sense of duty. And, um, even though it may sound reductionist, what I would want to say is this, and you know, for me, this is reflected all the way through the world of education. When we try and teach about the Holocaust, and we kind of feel compelled to do it, what actually are we really trying to do? And, um, and I think that first and foremost, we are trying to connect with the lost world or people that were murdered. It's the process of mourning. This year is the 20th you know, yard site for my father who died of cancer, you know, whatever, 20 years ago. I'm not remembering my dad through cancer. I'm going to remember my dad as the man I loved, the man who loved me, the man who taught me, the man who inspired me, the man with whom I have argument. And in order to feel a sense of duty to him, I want to remember him for who he was. And I feel the same way sort of collectively as a member of the Jewish people. I love my people. I want to, I feel that sense of pain and loss. I, the, the funny, I, I meant to mention it before. The book that I'm reading at the moment is The Lost Library by Dan Rabinovitz, which is the story of the Strachan Library in Vilna. And it's, um, it's way big. It's not just about Holocaust. It's about many things, but the Holocaust sits at the middle of it because that's the reason why the library was lost. One of the greatest, and so the first Jewish public library. That is an emblem, as a symbol of es the essence of who we were. There was a library in Vilna where all streams of the Jewish people came and all the books were there on the shelf and that got destroyed. And for me, if I feel a sense of duty, it's to recreate some image, some part of that, you know, euphemistically. Mm, wow. Thank you. Rachel, duty. I appreciate all of your your thoughts, Jeremy, and a piece of me absolutely uh, agrees with all of that. I think for the work that I do and I do every day is not motivated only by the atrocities of the Holocaust, but the sense that that heart of the question that my 11-year-old is asking, which is how do good people allow horrible things to happen? And that piece, that question is grounded very much for me and not facts and figures about how many Jews were rounded up at what time, but rather the question of how does a society that's so enlightened, how does a society that is so educated, how does a society that has some of the most impressive cultural creations for its time in Germany allow the fraying of that society to occur and to be seduced by complete propaganda, 
seduced by ideas that allow for innate discrimination and allow for the decimation of so many intellectual ideas that I think many held so dear and continue to hold dear. And that question for me about that, that was asked, you know, is it about anti-Semitism and bigotry? Of course, it's all of the above. And it goes to the question for me of how do you put in the 21st century, the discussion of anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, because most young people, just to share with you all, which most of you know, don't even know what anti-Semitism is. It's a pseudo-clinical, sanitized word. What's a Semite? What's an anti-Semite? They don't know. And, and that's Jews and non-Jews who don't know. And so for me, it's about putting Jew hatred in conversation with other forms of hatred, but for the purpose of creating sensitivity and raising awareness and education so that the democracies that we live in, and those that aren't democracies, one would hope um, we would be able to, to think about as well, but the democracies can't allow the immediate scapegoating of a particular people. Jeremy and Johnny, I, I agree with you. I don't imagine that my work is going to stamp out anti-Semitism. It's been around for a very long time, and we know it is not going anywhere. But I do feel a deep sense of responsibility as a historian and as an educator to think about how do you begin that process, especially people who aren't sensitized to this and don't have this history, right? And if most of us who live in a democracy and who know that the Jewish population is 0.0 whatever percent of the world, how do you ensure that people understand that what happened is not only a historical moment in time, but can happen again? And what is our responsibility, our duty to ensure that it doesn't? Since the end of the Shu'ah, there have been significant attempts to provide opportunities to learn about and to consider the implications of what happened during those dark years. There are memoirs and academic research and museums and film testimonies and Hollywood movies and school curricula and teacher training programs and visits to Poland. We might have thought that we would see some relief from Jew hatred and racism. Yet when I look around, I see that hatred is still prevalent and it has now been coupled with the technological means to broaden its reach and quicken its speed, to spread the distribution of lies, distortions and to enable the proliferation of fake news. It is sobering to think we have not made much progress. So how do you see it? In what measure are you despairing? And in what measure are you hopeful? I think... What's most despairing in many ways is that we see this hatred persist. And I see it all the time, specifically online, very quickly, where I think we've lost a lot of civility. There's a sense of anonymity. People who I think probably wouldn't feel comfortable saying this in front of a group of people have no problem putting it on their comment thread and a you know, platform page on social media. And so there's a herd mentality that goes with that. And there's a sense that it is socially acceptable to say these things about Jews, Judaism, and the Jewish state. And in many ways, that's quite despairing because technology is only going to be a tool and means for which people continue to engage, as we see, particularly during this period of quarantine. And the way in which that speed precipitates those kinds of statements, and you have detractors who are actively pushing a message of hate and trying to seduce these folks in the middle that I call the don't knows, non-Jews and Jews who just don't know, don't have enough background 
haven't been exposed to, don't have the foundation to understand. And again, it's not just the history of, which we all know is important, but it's understanding ultimately how people's allowed this to happen. And so my concern is what those detractors will be able to do over a period of time to influence those folks in the middle who may not become detractors themselves, but do move the needle to become swayed by these ideas. And that feels quite despairing at times because it happens at an overwhelmingly fast pace. And the motivation for those detractors is pure evil. There's not a single doubt in my mind about that. And you can't isolate just one type of detractor. It's hard, hard left. It's hard, hard right. It's radical Islamists. And so it can feel overwhelming and like you are drowning in a sea of hatred. Now, thankfully, I don't feel that way. And that actually motivates me and energizes me because it's the work that I do on a regular basis to think about how to inoculate and create antibodies for these folks in the middle so they are not seduced by that hatred. Um, But I do think it is of pressing concern, particularly in the 21st century, because it crosses borders. It crosses time zones. It crosses hate groups. And I'm not sure that everyone recognizes how severe of a threat this ultimately is. And in an age of fake news and the lack of transparency, transparency and people understanding history, we should be quite concerned. At the same time, what motivates me and I'm hopeful about, I think I'm hopeful that every night when I put my children to bed, I cannot leave their rooms because they do not let me until we sing two things, until we sing the Shema and until we sing Hatikva. And that motivates me because these four children of mine have a deep sense, like you're talking about, Jeremy, of defining Jewishness and holding on to that sense of Jewishness and Jewish identity and have a deep connection to the collective of the Jewish people. And it's that combination that we constantly are toggling between particularism and universalism. And I see it in them and I see it in the way my husband and I are trying our best to parent. But that gives me a lot of hope. The perennial nature of Jew hatred is remarkable. It seems so resilient as it mutates to fit itself to the times. It spirals from being about Jews as a religion of Christ killers, to regarding Jews as a blood group and the subhuman race, to Jews as a nation that is responsible for the lack of peace in the world. As Isaiah Berlin famously defined it, to be an anti-Semite is to hate Jews more than is absolutely necessary. But what, I wondered, does Jeremy think are the lessons for ourselves? I'm going to pick on two groups uh, for whom I despair. One is, um, is something which I think comes from the liberal world. They're my people, so to speak. I mean, this is <laughs> politically and religiously, but I, it's a comment. It, it's a kind of a thing which I hear and I've observed from my students over the last number of years, which is a kind of a nervousness to want to kind of talk about anti-Semitism and want to talk about Holocaust teaching, but there's a feeling that somehow we're weaponizing our suffering in order to somehow deny the privilege that we own. I, I have no truck with it. I, I think you can own your, you can acknowledge your privilege, you can not weaponize, you just have to be honest about what's going on in the world, and I don't feel any obligation to kind of apologize. So I'm despairing because I think there's a kind of a chink in the armor of liberalism that has kind of disabled the fight um, to speak up for ourselves. The other one, um, again, I mean, it's blunt, it's political, it's controversial, uh, but I can't apologize, which is 
Having celebrated optimistically the achievement of Jewish sovereignty, we have a government um, that has chosen to make life unbearably hard for people fleeing genocide, persecution, civil war in Africa, who've come to our country thinking we were people that it turns out that we're not. And, uh, you know, the na- you know, to name the prime minister, the interior ministry, officials in the, in the foreign ministry, to read about people who should know better. It's not the Holocaust. They're not fleeing the Holocaust. It's not a false equivalence. It's saying that if we celebrate the sense that we have sovereignty and power to look after ourselves and to use that as a struggle to defend ourselves, for goodness sake, we spend so much time teaching about all the bad things that can potentially happen to have no ounce of empathy with people who are fleeing, well, in some cases, seriously genocide. And just, it's a blank. All we can do is lock onto the sense of ourselves and, and to rule everybody out. For me, I despair and I'll do with it whatever you do. As I say, I don't live in the world of despair. So the only other option is to fight. So that brings me to to say, well, hold on then. Rituals of memory, rituals of mourning, of customs of being able to capture things that have happened to people before and make them available to another generation who is by definition distanced from the lived experience of whatever that trauma was, who doesn't have the same access to the the eyewitness testimonies, who doesn't have the same uh, family memories of being woken up by screaming elderly relatives having nightmares and all that goes with that. So how do we think about the practices of memory developing over time so that we do build these moral commitments that that, that both of you have, have mentioned and, and spoken to. So, Jeremy, how do, how do you think about the development of, of the rituals that we need to pay attention to? I, uh, <laughs> the frustration of the shortened time to talk about these, in, you, you've given us these kind of incredibly juicy topics. I, I, I have to go back one stage because I, I'm challenging, I want to challenge a little bit of the assumption. New history or new knowledge I'm not sure it's the catalyst. For me, it's an a priori commitment to how we hear history. And in that respect, it is, it is political. Um, there are plenty of people who knew about the Holocaust. In 1945, there was a pogrom in, in August 45 in Krakow, in, in 46 of the pogromic Celts. No one could have said that anyone in Poland did not know what had happened to the Holocaust. So knowledge or, or the uncovering of truth doesn't necessarily sensitize people and doesn't necessarily create a ritual of remembrance. It took until 1985 before Jacques Chirac in France was willing to kind of tell the truth on what everybody would otherwise know. And we are still fighting in many countries countries in East Central Europe, because people are perfectly well aware. In 2008, the Lithuanian prosecutor's office sent out arrest warrants for Yitzhak Arad, Rachel Margolis, and Fanny Brunsowska, who were kind of partisans. Everybody knew what they'd done, and nobody needed the extra information. The practice and the memory was such that was was understood. It's just that they interpreted history in a certain kind of way, and that these people had been partisans fighting the people who were killing Jews. It just so happened the people killing the Jews were Lithuanian patriots or nationalists, and they were not. And uh, and you know the the regime of then saw them as being anti anti Lithuanian. So for me, the, the, the question of the knowledge of history is, is critical, but it won't get us round the core question of fighting or pressing for depth of honesty. 
it is one of the most remarkable events in the in this kind of discourse where it took a judge in the UK in London to kind of legally state that the Holocaust happened, that denial was a criminal offence, and that, you know, that was connected to anti-Semitism. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So for me, I, I'm not optimistic. The, the practice of history is really the practice of education. It's a political challenge um, to try and assert you know, a kind of a, a reading of history the way that we do. And that's one of the reasons why, again, I mean, of the various places where one fights it, I, ma- I mash together two words there, politics and, and education. But absolutely, because education is subversive. It's trying to tackle. And um, you know, if I go back to something which I didn't say before, if I'm optimistic about, you know, the question before about despairing and optimism, you know, working with teachers who I think come with a kind of a broad open mind, but no particular depth of knowledge. And I hope, you know, leave with a kind of a, a sophisticated understanding that because, because, by the way, there's a natural tendency to take knowledge and make it say what you want it to say. I want to also reference one of my uh, teachers, uh, Dr. Eli Dlin, who was my boss when I made Aliyah at Yad Vashem, and, uh, but also a teacher. And he uh, had this image of that he used, uh, which is the way we use magnification to talk about the past. So one is that you look down the microscope and you know the, it, the, the light magnifies. You put the Holocaust underneath the glass and it says you can only see what it says. And you have to analyze it accordingly. But there are people who actually make the Holocaust the glass itself, the image of a magnifying glass. You take the Holocaust as the magnifying glass, you put it over what you previously believed, and it just makes it bigger. I think that all people, you know, I believe in humankind, put the Holocaust on top of it, and it will magnify it and say that. I, I distrust all Gentiles, put the Holocaust on top of it, and it will magnify and say it many times over. So therefore, the, the reason I think Ellie was saying it was to say in the end, there is no substitute for us actually asking the deeper question, which is how are we able to be honest about the evidence and, um, and, and, and therefore, as it were, kind of to be a lot more, well, if I may say that's the word I wanted to use, a little bit more humble. For me, historians and history teachers need humility because humility is the ability to say it's not just about me. There is something bigger than this, and I have to listen to that, I have to analyze it uh, and be careful about it. Yeah. Rachel? I'm getting to a point where I have to write down everything these days. And when I do write it down, though, I recognize that when I remember it, the moment 20 minutes from when I wrote it, I'm already thinking about it in a different way than I originally wrote it, which is the challenge of the historian when writing history. It's the challenge of reading, you know, the memoirs that we're going to be reading. And we bring our own lens, Jeremy, not just the magnification of the light, but our own lens and our own experiences. And so I think about, Johnny, so how do I make this relevant to a generation who is most likely not interacting with any survivors and will not actually get to meet a single survivor in their lifetime? And as much of a lover of history that I am, I find that this is where the emotional story, not manipulative, it must be authentic, but the storytelling and the ability to tell a story of what was, of what happened and what became through love and tragedy and romance and at times irony and humor is so important, particularly as we transmit to the next generation. Because unfortunately, I don't think that the majority of people are going to read the histories that we so desire them to read. I think there will be some self-select, positively predisposed educators and others who may, but the majority will not. So how do we transmit a life that was quite different than ours? And not just outside of the Jewish community, but even within the Jewish community, right? To have Jews who 
are not traveling to these places who cannot recreate in their mind what that library was like in Vilna, right? They can't imagine. So how do we do that in a way that will resonate with them and that it will make them feel as if they have been transported back to that time and place while also providing both a mirror and a window to allow them to reflect on themselves and to see a piece of them in it or what they would like to see of themselves, even if aspirational, but also the window to see beyond of what was. And that is the tool I think that one must be able to use and imagine and reinvent as we think about how to share, you know, the experiences. The other piece, and Jeremy, you're the expert in this, and Johnny, you are as well, is the experiential, right? The actual experience of going and not, you know, sometimes it is going to Yad Vashem and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, which have two very different purposes, let alone other kinds of museums, but also the experience of traveling to the places where we had lively Jewish culture, identity, and Um, imagination to places that don't exist in the same way and what that means for individuals when they can have that experience imprinted on them on their own memories and in some ways imprinted in their DNA so that as they move forward it will help them when they pass the stories on to their children and their children. Um, I want to bring us uh, to to the final question now um, which is invite you to share a poem or a song and your bracha for the people of Israel at this time. In light of the fact that we're going now into Yom HaShoah, what is it? What's, what gets at it uh, uh, for you? Jeremy. The poem is um, it's a poem by uh, the poet, the Yiddish poet Avram Tzutzkever, who Tzutzkever in the, in the poem imagines the lead plates at the, Rom, at the Rom press, and it was the printing press of Vilna. And the poem, he says, arrayed at night like fingers stretched through bars to clutch the lit air of freedom, we made for the press plates to seize the lead plates at the ROM printing works. We were dreamers, we had to be soldiers, and melt down for our bullets the spirit of the lead. As some timeless native lair, we unlocked the seal once more, shrouded in shadow by the glow of a lamp. Like temple ancients dipping oil, into candelabrums of festal gold. So pouring out line after lettered line did we. Letter by melting letter the lead. Liquefied bullets gleamed with thoughts. A verse from Babylon, a verse from Poland. Seething flowing into the one mold. Must now, now must Jewish grit, long concealed in words, detonate the world in a shot. Who in Vilna ghetto has beheld the hands of Jewish heroes clasping weapons, has beheld Jerusalem in its throes, the crumbling of those granite walls, grasping the words smelted into lead, conning their sound by heart? The spirit of the lead, it's not about creating bullets, it's about the spirit of everything that was contained within them. As for a blessing for, the, for, for us to think about today, it's not original. But I'm going to share, it's a comment made by uh, many years ago by Professor Yudha Bauer uh, when asked at a conference, so what's all this mean? What's the point of all of this learning? And he says very simply to make sure that you're, that we are in future, we're never a perpetrator, that we're never a bystander, and that we're never a victim. And uh, for me, there is a timeless kind of moving around which potential we have the chance to be and to ensure to kind of reaffirm once again that that we will never do those things and uh, if the spirit of the lead says that 
על אחת כמה וכמה. Thank you. Rachel. Because I have been thinking a lot about children, I have a poem here by a child in the Theresian concentration camp in 1942. Many of you probably have read called The Butterfly by Pavel Friedman. The last, the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzlingly yellow, perhaps if the sun's tears would sing against a white stone. Such, such a yellow, it carried lightly way up high. It went away, I'm sure, because it wished to kiss the world goodbye. For seven weeks, I've lived in here, pinned up inside this ghetto, but I have found what I love here. The dandelions call to me, And the white chestnut branches in the court, only I never saw another butterfly. That butterfly was the last one. Butterflies don't live in here in the ghetto. I read that with the sun shining in Boston, knowing that my children again are playing outside and probably are going to see many butterflies. And I can't help but feel sad. My heart just hurts. And I think my blessing is a blessing. Related to Nachshon only because we recently read the Haggadah. And when Nachshon was nervous to dip his toe in that water, but Nachshon dips his toe in the waters and takes those first steps through the Red Sea, despite his fears, I feel that we have a responsibility to be the Nachshon every opportunity we can. To dip our feet in those waters, to wade into them unabashedly, to stand up for who we are, To make sure very clearly we model for our children that we stand up for who we are and for others, that particularism and universalism, and know that it's not that we're not afraid, but that despite that fear, it is our duty and responsibility. Uh, we've talked today about a range of subjects that defy an easy summary. Uh, personally, years ago, I expected that my sense of scandal that I feel about the Shoah would diminish over time. As I've learned more and read more and listened more to survivors and experts, I was expecting and maybe even hoping that my vast sense of astonishment would diminish. I have not found that to be my experience. My outrage at what happened and the troubling ongoing realization halts me every year, hence the commitment to, to read. Abba Kovna, whose biography I'm reading, wrote this poem called Circuits. When the world war ended, it ended for the whole world. I was in Bucharest on the third border, fleeing from my home to my home. When the world war ends, when it ends, I leave Bucharest and wend my way around the world. Perhaps I will find the back door to my mother's house. I will say, Mama, it's me. I hope that our children... Our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will be able to say, Mama, it's me. Thanks to Rachel and Jeremy for enlarging, enlivening and enlightening our time together. For your conviction and for your connection. In sum, I think I am caught by both remembering and forgetting. If all I and we do is remember, then the grim details of murder on an industrial scale are overwhelming, disfiguring and paralyzing. And if all I and we do is forget, then we are guilty of betraying millions of innocent people who were solely abused for being Jews. And how can we then claim an ounce of humanity ourselves in our relations with others? I resolve both to remember and to forget. 
And that ends this inaugural episode of L'Chaim, the Makom Salon. Thanks to our producer, Osnat Fox from Makom, and to Yaniv Giladi, our sand guru. You can find the details of our conversations, including recommendations for further reading, at both makomisrael.org and also on our Facebook page. Just search for Makom Israel. Join me again next week. Until then, take good care and drink a l'chaim to a flourishing life. <laughs>